Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Surpassable mantra, 
It completely clears all pain. This is the truth, not a lie. So set forth the Prajna Paramita Mantra. Set forth this mantra and say, Gate, Gate, Para, Gate, Parasangate, Bodhiswaha, Prajna Heart Sutra. Good evening. Nice to see weekly familiar faces. The chanting is coming along. It'll take some time. I want to dedicate the evening tonight to Jack and his family. Jack's mother passed away two weeks ago. Yeah. One thing that's nice about chanting the Heart Sutra is um, breathing. And um, this, in a way, can be turned into a liturgical chant. And um, in some monasteries in some countries, young monks will actually compete to see if they can do the whole chant in one breath. And... um, I often give the last part of the chant, the gate gate, paragate, to yoga students in their pranayama practice to chant internally during the retentions um, at the top of the inhale or the bottom of the exhale to measure time and to activate the heart sutra. And also, you know, I've been trying not to to be academic with this text and to talk a lot about how it relates to our life. But also, you should know that this chant is also considered a kind of protection chant. And so at times of transition or in times of crisis or times of death, um, this chant is chanted as a kind of protection, which we talked about in the first class tonight, about protection and the different ways that can be interpreted. And um, and at a more obvious level, it's uh, protection from um, the egoic uh, habit energies in the mind that want to make things out of things, out of conditioned phenomena. And so what we've been focusing on in our study of the Heart Sutra is the way that Um, the sutra focuses on negation. That everything that you hold on to, that you think has substantiality in time and in space, every impermanent phenomena that you try and make permanent, every thought, every word, every deed, every relationship, every concept, on and on and on and on, to the point where we covered last week, no I no nose, no tongue, no ear, no mind. And therefore, no shape. 
that even at the level of your eye, or even at the level of your breath, I always thought breath should be included here, even at the level of the breath, there is no part of the breath that belongs to you. So if you inhale and you let the stream of the breath go up through the right nostril, um, you can't find the place where the wind, that we call, in, in Sanskrit the word is vayu, which means wind, where the wind ends and it becomes your breath. There's no physical location. We talked about this last week with sound. You could do the same thing with a samosa. You eat a samosa, one of the best creations by human beings, really, on the planet, <laughs> aside from feta cheese. And you eat a samosa, and as you're chewing it and you swallow it, it's impossible to find the place where the samosa ends and you begin. You go down to the acids in the stomach and you still can't find the samosa ending and you beginning. You can't find it with the breath, you can't find it with anything. And this is called conditioned arising. That because anything that shows up in reality or in awareness arises in conditions, and because those conditions arise in conditions, then you get dependent origination or dependent creation. That you can't find a thing because it's conditioned by so many other things. Are we clear about that? Yes? So even when you say, oh, well, but I exist, <coughs> well, in what way do you exist? And so the first you know, month of this study, we really went after the five skandhas, the way that perception and habit and mental formations, memory, all that does not exist permanently either. That's also changing within conditions. And we focused one week on memory, and talking about how there is no location for memory. That even our memories don't actually exist. They arise in conditions in present experience, and then they pass away again. None of, none of our memories are still hanging around, even though we can call them up, or a certain smell will bring up a condition. And all this is geared towards recognizing the inherent intimacy of all things, not just human. And after studying uh, the Heart Sutra, John Cage wrote a wonderful poem. And um, I would love to read the whole poem, but it's way too long. Here's his summation. Um, he's trying to translate the Heart Sutra into a document for um, uh, an art that's rooted in politics. And here's, here's how he sums it up. To stop the estrangement between us, to overcome the patriarchal thinking, the authoritarian structures, the coldness human not-togetherness. I'll read it one more time. To stop the estrangement between us, to overcome the patriarchal thinking, the authoritarian structures, and the coldness, human not-togetherness. The coldness, human not-togetherness. 
And in the flow of the syllables, <coughs> it sounds like he's going to say all togetherness. Not togetherness. And um, in a way, this is exactly what the Heart Sutra is after. Is that even at the level of doctrine, and personally, I think that when this text gets reading, reading? If you're reading this text as doctrine, thank you, Mr. Cage. Um, there are some states where I could have said that and it actually would have been <laughs> appropriate. So even grammar, you know, is shifting. And um, when my son was about two and I never slept, I had this theory that the more you don't sleep, the more interesting words you invent. Because <laughs> your grammar just dissolves. <laughs> um, now he's five, I have no excuse. <clears throat> um, that when you treat this text just as doctrine, there's not enough in this short text to really understand the doctrine. Because it's referring to a much larger version of the Maha Prajnaparamita. Um, but to see that this text is trying to cut through doctrine to wake you up and to show how even the way that we take these ideas that are teachings that are so helpful to us sometimes and we reify them and we turn them into a language that we believe in, <coughs> that we're starting to miss the essence of the teaching. You see? So it's taking all the core teachings of the Buddha, including the Four Noble Truths, the fact that there's a path, the skandhas, the six sense bases, dependent origination, and saying, no, all of that is empty. But empty as a characteristic. So some people take empty and say, oh, it's a void, it doesn't exist. So no, it's a characteristic. So fire has a characteristic of heat. And you can't separate the heat in a fire from the fire, right? Uh, water has the characteristic of wetness. You can't separate the wetness and the water. It's a characteristic. So form, okay, could be the form of a floor, but it can also be the form of a teaching, or the form of your eye, or the form of your nose. A form has the characteristic of emptiness. You see? So you can't separate emptiness and form. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. So, that's not the way we operate most of the day. We frame people. We frame experiences. We frame our relationships so that they're fixed in space and time. And then we believe in the frame. And we don't see the frame maker. And that's why we practice. If the goal of this practice is intimacy, is compassion, the goal of this practice is kindness and tenderness and nonviolence, then we have to use some technique so that we can see the way that the mind captures things and turns them into permanent objects. And how that that's the enemy of intimacy. It closes down your heart. 
And some people say, oh, the Heart Sutra is such a dense philosophical, but it's called the Heart Sutra. <laughs> the Heart Sutra. To suture your heart. There's a saying, you know, a broken heart is an open heart. I don't know what that means. Good saying. <laughs> I remember one time with a broken heart going to Allen Gardens and walking around because I just needed to look at a palm tree. And walking around and on my way I was just inside my own brokenness and and sadness. And then I get to Allen Gardens and if you've been there you know that when you walk around Allen Gardens there are so many homeless suffering, mostly men, walking around. And suddenly, my tears, my sadness, was their sadness. And it's helpful sometimes when you're broken to see levels of brokenness beyond your brokenness. Beyond your neuroses to really also see suffering, other people's suffering. And when you're suffering, it's easier to tune in to other people's suffering because you're not so busy trying to consume your way out of it, which is what most of us tend to do. So, paramita, which usually is translated as perfection, um, also means to go beyond. To go beyond, as it talks about later, the walls of the mind. To end fear. To end a life that's organized by fear. And the more we experience fear in our life, the more we make frames around things. So there's a direct relationship between our, our embodiment of the teaching of impermanence and our <coughs> framing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, when we're scared and we can't open, we have two mechanisms we turn to, and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, usually the two mechanisms are characterized as fight or flight. We don't know, and so we either fight our way to some truth, or we take off dissociation even internally, right? And I felt when I was contemplating this that that spectrum actually doesn't really correspond to the med meditative experience of what happens when we're faced with transition and impermanence. The spectrum is more complicated. On one side is actually fight or flight. It's the same mechanism, actually, fight or flight. And on the other side is knowing, knowing, analyzing, thinking, the superficial kind of like, I'm trying to get my head around this, you know? And that's the spectrum, actually. And that's both superficial mind, that either I'm going to take off or fight, or on the other side, um, I need to know every corner of this because I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I'm going to analyze it. And then I'll know. 
not just a form of fighting. And that can also be a form of fighting, yeah. Or flighting. Or flighting, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know for me, I would say that uh, if I go deep into that kind of analytical frame, I'm gone. I'm not really with the experience of what's happening. I'm with my theory and how comforting that is. Because my theory gives me the feeling of permanence. Oh, now I know. And it's easier to control your life because it's working according to your plan. Because you're inventing a plan that makes it fit. And the Heart Sutra is saying, you know, no, 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 no eye, no ears, no tongue, no path. (laughs) And you just want to say, (laughs) I just want to have my, you know, Hollywood version of this, you know, whatever. And there's this film out called He's just really not that into you or something? What's it called? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's based on a book. Okay, I hated the title. I, I, never, I never saw the film, but I didn't like And after a while, I really started liking the title. <laughs> because in a way, what's happening in our sitting practice is this recognition that this is how it is. This is how it is. And it's so easy to create enemies and scapegoat and blame or have really good interpretations about our experience. But we know at some deep level that they can't ever fit. Because you can't ever get a frame of reference that's complex enough to capture life. It doesn't work. And you have to spend quite a few years of trying to make that work before you can practice. Because otherwise there's no motivation to practice. Because the, the suffering that comes from the transitions that blow apart your framework is the fuel for your practice. Otherwise there's nothing to practice. And it's amazing, and some of you know some of the teenagers who've come here over the years, a couple of them, to practice. And um, there's so much motivation to practice because they're so in touch with their suffering. You know, because the they become aware of the gap between who they're supposed to be and who they are, and they can't fit it together. And they decide maybe I need to just be still for a long while. How amazing that is when that happens to a young person. Yeah. Um, someone asked me if I would read the poem from last week, from Ikkyu again. So here's Ikkyu's response um, to this way that we contract around everything. If you break open the cherry tree, where are the flowers? But in the springtime, see how they bloom. So you break open the cherry tree, where are the flowers? 
you, you try and go in to your eye and find where does the eye start and end. You can't find it. But there's still vision functioning. You, you, and this is a great thing to do on retreat, is to listen to sound and try and find the place where your ear ends and the sound starts and you can't find it. Yet, there's listening. You try and find the place where your body, which is whatever percentage of water, ends and the ocean starts. And you can't find it. You cry and it's ocean water. So, Ikkyu says, if you break open the cherry tree, where are the flowers? But in springtime, see how they bloom. So, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. That just because something doesn't exist, doesn't mean it doesn't function. Triple negative. (laughs) Doesn't mean it doesn't function. So you don't exist. But if I said, Pat, you don't exist, you'd come over and punch me and say, I exist, you know? So at an ontological level, you don't exist. You're also a conditioned flow, right? But at a relative level, you exist. And you need the relative level to see the unconditioned, right? Because emptiness is a characteristic of form, but it's not separate from form. You see? So some people have this idea of emptiness as like, there's this empty void I can get to in my meditation practice, and you split off emptiness and think that it's a thing. But that's not what the teaching is. The teaching is that emptiness is a characteristic of form. It can't be separated. Yeah. Just like if you really want to study the nature of reality, you use the body. And if you really study the body deeply, you go beyond the body. Because you see that there's no body. And so what we do with students around here is we push you and push you and push you to see conditioned existence. Because then it shifts the viewpoint. And then you can look back at form from the position of emptiness. You see? And then you see the relative from the unconditioned perspective. If that makes sense. And then you'll invent a language around that and think you're spiritual. And that's why you practice in community, (laughs) so other people can go. So this insight into emptiness um, (coughs) saves us from suffering, from dukkha, from self-generated discontent. Are there any questions before we keep going? Concerns? Really? (laughs) 
Yeah. Isn't, isn't this framework of emptiness and impermanence itself a model that yeah. contains, you know, that that needs to be transcended or whatever the proper word is for it? And then if that's the case, then what's your proper attitude to that model? How do you, how do you respond to that model without investing too much in it? This this uh, teaching doesn't allow you to get too attached, because at every corner it's saying no. Even there's no path, there's no attainment, there's no going forward, there's no going backward. So it's hard to say, oh well, my new philosophy is, uh, <laughs> you know, and then it's saying no, 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 but. It's also taught and practiced and chanted in the context of a form. So here we are in this building, which is a form. A couple weeks ago, we spent the night talking about this. But this building has no inherent existence. (coughs) The center of gravity has no inherent existence. This teaching has no inherent existence. It's pointing at something. But what it's pointing at is outside of form. So don't get too attached to the form. But what it's pointing at is not separate than the form. So use the form. You know, In my earlier years of practice, I associated the core of the practice with no form. And I found that after a few years, I used that to avoid practice. Because you, the form is sacred. And so you use the form, even the form of this body or the technique of meditation, to go beyond it. Just like the famous story, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> don't just start bowing down. Because you don't take refuge in Shakyamuni. You take refuge in Buddha. Shakyamuni is a person separate from you. Buddha is you. And as long as you think that Buddha is outside of you, you'll go looking outside of you. There's a wonderful story about this where um, Jack Cornfield was studying with his teacher in northern Thailand, Ajahn Cha, and um, started to notice Jack Cornfield was a you know psychologically trained Western young person, and started to notice that Ajahn Shah was doing all these things that like were against the rules. Smoking, going out into the forest and having a smoke, okay? Chewing betel nut, you know, eating sugar, you know, like doing a few things that like, how could this person be a Buddha? He's chewing betel nut, you know? And so one day he gets the courage and he says, uh, I'd, I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to bring something up about... I'm noticing some things. <laughs> and of course, some of you who know Thai culture, like, you never do this to some... Like, if you have a problem with someone, you tell their friend. <laughs> you know? So he confronts him and says, well, I, I, you know, you're chewing betel nut, you're smoking, you know, all these things. How can you be a teacher? You know? And um, Ajahn Chah's response was... Um, well, I'm glad you're not looking for the Buddha outside of yourself. I'm glad you're not looking for the Buddha outside of yourself.
so he had to eat the blame. And um, we can also sometimes, one of the ways we get attached to the form is we idealize it. Okay? And then we all start debating what is the proper way to chant the Heart Sutra. And this translation is not the right translation. I'm going to open my own school because we're going to use a different translation. And, uh, and then we become so caught in the form mm-hmm. that we forget what the form is pointing at. You know? And nobody is more guilty of this as the current Hatha Yoga dropping yoga class format mainstream something thing whatever it is where there's so much focus on the physical technique without the context of what the complexity of the practice is so it actually works on your life as opposed to just being a self-improvement project where we're so where we're using the form of the body but not to see through the workings of the body. We're just using it to do something with the body. And um, that breeds a tremendous amount of attachment. Because it's not, it, it's the, the teaching is not in an ethical, psychological context. Because it's hard to make money at that. Um, so I want to transition to the next sentence in the Heart Sutra which is no eye no ear no nose, no tongue no body, no mind no color so these are now the characteristics of the first sense organs right? So there's a sense organ and a sense object. So the sense organ is the eye, and the object is color. The organ is the ear, the object is sound. Do you follow that? Mm -hmm. No color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no phenomenon. And when the eye and color come together, you get a realm of sight. Okay? Or also known in Abhidharma as eye consciousness. So then, because, so this is the core teaching of the Buddha, is that consciousness doesn't exist as as a linear phenomenon, which is what's so radical about his teaching compared to the Indian philosophy before his time, which is that um, consciousness is a thing. And actually, I think Western philosophy really has this, this notion also that, that consciousness is just, because there's consciousness, I can see the wall. And the Buddha is saying, but if you watch your meditative experience, your visceral experience closely, you'll see that there's no continuity in consciousness, that the ear and the sound come together, the eye and the form come together, the nose and the smell, and that makes a moment of consciousness and so here it's kind of nicely translated um, here a realm of sight realm of consciousness from ignorance oh, I won't get too far ahead of myself so because there's that first moment 
of consciousness, in that moment of consciousness, there's sensation, right? And then there's perception. We, we define that moment of consciousness afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Sensation and then perception. And then once there's perception and sensation, there's a feeling tone. And the feeling can be positive, negative, or neutral. And I like to call this the three baskets. So when you experience, when something is experienced, we know that there's pain in the knee because there's a moment of consciousness followed by sensation, perception, and then let's say negative feeling, right? And that happens like that. But in meditation practice, you can watch. So mindfulness practice is slowing that down. So you can watch that whole process happen. Okay? And once there's feeling, there's attachment or aversion to the feeling. Okay? And this is called the 12 links of causation. And I think maybe next week we'll spend a bit more time on the 12 links. Maybe we'll even read the sutta that it comes from. And here, the Heart Sutra is saying, but even in the 12 links of causation, those links don't actually exist. They're dependent on each other. Like you can't have feeling if there's no sensation. And so you can't actually find where a sensation ends and a feeling starts. So even though the 12 links have been so helpful as a technique, the Heart Sutra is saying, no, but it's, that's the technique, but they don't exist. <laughs> so, but I... <laughs> and actually what I thought we would do uh, as I was preparing tonight is um, next week maybe just pause on the Heart Sutra and study the 12 links and then go back to the Heart Sutra and see how it's being played with. Because it's hard to enjoy how radical this text is unless you kind of know what it's referring to. And that's what, why we read the uh, Single Excellent Night Sutta before we started this. Um, any questions so far? We just covered dependent origination. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> What's Thoughts? that place between, um, like when I'm, I'll just give an example, when I'm sitting, I, something comes up and I feel it, <coughs> but before you attach onto it or you frame it, yeah. when you just notice it, yeah. that's what I always want to stay with, Yeah. and then my mind grabs on it. Yeah, so there's feeling, and you know through feeling. Mm-hmm. Right, but then as soon as there is attachment to it, or aversion from it, there, there's so there's feeling pain in the knee, and then as soon as there's attachment or aversion, so let's say there's aversion because that's just an easier example. Mm-hmm. There has to be an objectification of the knee to want to get away from it. There has to be an it. So in that moment. There's a knee, right? And then there's a me. Mm -hmm. And then there's a me 
who doesn't like the knee. <laughs> but before that happened, yeah. there was just pain happening in the knee. Then it's my pain in my knee, and I don't like it, and I'm going to do something about it, because I'm an individual. <laughs> The word should actually be individual. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like this idea that the consciousness is sort of coalesces, you know, and kind of pretends kind of in, in these sort of, and if there's nothing, no realm of consciousness that exists underneath or permanently. Yeah. But what is it when all that stuff kind of, you know, like sediment sort of settles and they you know, talk about pure consciousness? Uh-huh. And there's still like a witnessing eye. Is that part of consciousness, or is that just the ground of being, or what is that? Is that constant? Is the witness? <coughs> you know, they talk about even deep, slowly sleep, you know, slowly and everything, you know, meditators mentor into it and sort of witness this empty, mm-hmm. blissful place. Mm-hmm. Is that, what is that witness? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Yeah, like the mind has to conceptualize it. And the more you conceptualize it, the more difficult it is in your meditation practice. Because you're looking for something. Um, And Patanjali gets around this by saying that Purusha, or pure awareness, is Svarupa Shunya. It's empty of self-form. It's convenient. Uh, And everybody wants to translate that as something. That's God. That's pure consciousness. That's Krishna consciousness. That's whatever it is. And the problem is, is that if you start your inquiry with an answer, there's nothing to learn. So nothing will hold the meditation practice more than your idea of what it is that's at the bottom of things. And the experience of pure awareness is impermanent. So as soon as that's touched, you have to keep going. So in this style or genre or brand, um, we try to... um, take the Heart Sutra position here, which is um, to really explore what's happening in our moment-to-moment visceral experience. And then when there are moments of stillness, there are moments of deep feeling of intimacy, to recognize that, to know that, and then to leave it alone. To leave it alone. No big deal. And those of you who, who you know study with other teachers and go on retreat, hopefully when you have these experiences and you're on a retreat and you say to your teacher, oh, such and such happened, I say, did you wash your bowl? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what, it's, it like it backfires, because I've been experiencing that a lot where I'm more mindful of my experiences. But now I'm even more mindful of when I, I frame things as like, this is a good moment. <laughs> this is a uh, beautiful yeah. image. Yeah. And 
automatically <coughs> it no longer is what I thought it was? Yes. So it, 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 it takes it away from me just as a, because I'm trying to grab it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the, um, so the, a path, uh, <laughs> it's the non-detachment allows for those experiences t to be absorbed, but not held on to? Yeah, not even absorbed. They just flow through, flow through awareness. You can't hold on to them because there's nothing to hold on to. The only way you can hold on to it is with your imagination. And that's the greatest cause of suffering. Is to not see that you, you can't hold on anyways. Like, the fact that something has arisen means it's, it's dying. You know? So, that's why when people say, oh, you know, I'm really working on letting go. You know, and usually that's in a phase where someone's really neurotic. You know, I try and let go of something, and I, you know, it's great for like it's like a 10 second philosophical pause. I'm letting go, and then I'm like all tight again, you know, because you can't let go of anything because it was never yours to begin with. Whatever's moving through awareness is letting go of you, there was never they were never attached to you. You know? So it's like outside. So for 10 minutes there's basketball. Then it's a fire engine. Then, and so it's not you letting go of basketball and you letting go of fire. It's to see that there was never a connection there to begin with, where it belonged to you. It never belonged to you. Nothing does. Nothing, nothing, no thing. That, <laughs> sorry. Um, when you say that uh, what, what I understood uh, what she was saying like it is like uh, memories yes um, they can they can be uh, they can make suffering but I think they can also uh, make happiness yes. like um, when, when she told uh, she was, uh, for example, it's what I understood. You are having like a good moment, and you, you try to to call, to capture it. You know? Yes. But I I thought, <laughs> in for example, with the memories you have when you are a child. Yes. Um, why can't they be you like part of you or yours to bring you happiness? That that's what happens. Me, my personal yes. And I was thinking before that maybe it's the it's a very primary step. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sorry, um, <laughs> that you have to. Uh, you have to give up. Give up. Yeah. Like. All that you are in, in some way, yes. but you have. I have like built my 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 life, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I have <laughs> relations. And and okay, what if I give up? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Y
what I am, mm -hmm. I will be, I don't know, I thought I will feel lonely and mm -hmm. empty. Mm -hmm. sure. I don't know. It's not so much that there's an active giving up of who you are, but rather that through letting go of where you're attached, you become who you are. The, the, the byproduct of this practice is eccentricity. Because you become free to be who you are. Because you're not trying to maintain an old version of who you are based on memory. You're not trying to recreate the old family photos. You're not trying to um, um, indulge in the negative memories either. We're trying to enter right here. And in being totally here, we are who we are. And our eccentricity is free to blossom. And then you're free. Spontaneous, effortless. And I'd say that probably your most satisfying memories of childhood are moments when this is exactly what was happening. You weren't plugging what was happening into a story or, a, or an internal commentary. You're just there. And those moments in our life, like giving birth or... Sometimes they're, you know, also like people talk about this getting shot. You know? They're so there that it becomes actually a spiritual experience, mystical experience. There's thinking, but there's no commentary. They're gone. And some people have never, like, talk about trauma, moments of trauma where they've never had <coughs> such a clear vision. You know, in Velcro Ripper's last film that he, I highly recommend you seeing, called Fierce Light, there's a, a man who marched with Martin Luther King across the bridge in, in Salem in Alabama, and he was beaten, and he woke up half-conscious in the prison with the guard standing right above him. And uh, he's being interviewed, and he talks about that experience, and he says, I woke up, I opened my eyes and my face was swollen and I looked up at the guard and all I felt was compassion. All I felt was intimacy with this guard. And so sometimes our waking up doesn't look like how you think it is going to be. I mean, imagine enlightenment if it was like you had the experience and you go, oh, enlightenment, just like I thought. <laughs> or would you want any of your life to, to go like that? Yeah. Um, lately I've been having a little bit of difficulty getting my head around this until this recent experience that you mentioned. Thank you. Um, and I found that in death, um, this really comes to the, to one's under, to one's awareness in a deep way. Mm -hmm. In that, the concept of transience and death in life, life in death, 
and there being no boundary between the two. Yes. And um, as you were mentioning earlier, that no breath should be here. Mm -hmm. I found the phenomenon of um, watching as my mother's um, life was flowing away, mm -hmm. that everything was focused on each breath. Yeah. And each breath was the entire life mm -hmm. and the entire death. Yeah. Until they stopped, and then they were still the entire life and the entire death. Mm -hmm. So there was that, there was a moment of stopping, but mm -hmm. there was a con continuity that yes. just flowed through all of it. Sure. And the concept, the, the surrealness of the entire experience for mm -hmm. me, kind of brought all of this into focus in yeah. some way. Surrealness or realness? <laughs> well, either, either yeah. or, or uh -huh. both. Uh, yeah. But you know, what I mean by surrealness yeah. is the non-current experience that I was having. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly it all just yeah. kind of started to, yeah. to flow. Yes. And, um, yeah, so, so that, that, that frame maker on the top that's saying this is life, this is death, this is her life, this is me, all that just dissolves. Yeah. Just dissolves <coughs> in a moment, in a in a in, a, in an experience, in a, in a yeah. lifetime, and yeah. and to me that that kind of brought all of this um, yeah. into a meaning that wasn't there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason why I picked that John Cage passage at the beginning was because the the part of us that keeps framing everything is the authoritarian patriarchal part sure. that we may project into culture but it's the part that creates coldness, human not togetherness. We project it into culture, we project it into relationship we project yeah. it into experience yeah. and, and, and yeah. Uh, in life itself. Yeah. I think that there are definitely times when we can move without framing anything. And hopefully we have enough of those experiences, which is I hope why we're all together here, that then when the framer is framing, which is very healthy, uh, when the storyteller is storytelling, we see the storyteller storytelling and we don't believe in it so quickly. When I spend time in the natural world, and you know, some of you know I spend most of the summer up northern Ontario, um, there are times where I'm going to the well, where I, it takes about a month for this to start happening, where there's just, As opposed to the first few weeks, there are glimpses, and it's like, oh, I've got to write this down. <laughs> How do I write that down? Or, oh, that's just like that poet that said, you know? 
So how to visit Paris? Paris is one of the hardest cities to visit because you've read so much about Paris and every corner and every restaurant and cafe and you you know the James Joyce Paris and the Gertrude Stein Paris and the, you know all these but that's other people's Paris and so it's hard to be in Paris because of the history you see mm-hmm. and so how do you break through that so that you can be in Paris <coughs> And how do you do that with other people? Especially the people you know and love so well. To break through. Well, to see the storyteller, the framer. Let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha.